This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are live every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific. And then we replay during the week and also available on our the SiriusXM app. Absolutely. So, so we just had a fantastic conversation around purpose, corporate purpose, and how um, – this is hard. How do you synthesize our last conversation? How, you know – purpose that is found throughout the organization uh, from the executive level to middle management and to hourly employees or sort of the entry-level professionals, uh, that can actually have a really strong impact, 7%, I think, um, uh, on returns on accounting and other financial performance metrics. Right. And I think the nice thing about that discussion, it it sort of emphasized the purposes of necessarily a pro-social purpose, but it's sort of what is what are we about? What is our company about? And how do we make sure that every employee in that company feels that they're playing a role in, in furthering that purpose? And exactly. I, it, it's, intuitively, it sounds like it would be really important because then you have employees who are you know, passionate about what they're doing and feel that it, it makes a difference. And we know that that's important. So we're going to pivot quite a bit um, with this next section. Um, our next guests are going to be Nicole Lavoie, who is the co-director of this Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sports at the University of Minnesota. Nicole, welcome to Dollars and Change. Thanks so much for having me. Great. And then joining joining Nicole is Cheryl Cookie. Cheryl is an associate professor of American Studies at Purdue University, and she's the co-author of No Slam Dunk, Gender, Sports, and the Unevenness of Social Change. Cheryl, welcome to Dollars and Change. Happy to be here. Great. So what we're going to do is we'll we'll first have you each talk a little bit about, you know, basically the research that you do, and then we'll get started on the conversation. So, Nicole, tell us about your work. Sure. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport, it is the first of its kind research center in the whole world that's solely dedicated to the study of making a difference in the lives of girls and women through sport. So in my role as director of the Tucker Center, I spend my time doing research, advocacy, outreach, and education around making a difference for sports women and girls. And we have various aspects of our research that we do that I'm sure we'll get into later. Excellent. Sounds good. And Cheryl, what about you? Yeah, so I'm trained as a uh, sociologist, and my research focuses on the intersection of gender, sport, culture and media. And so I'm really interested in looking at uh, sport as a lens through which we can better understand American culture, um, so better understand uh, uh, gender and what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman in our society. And I'll, I'll echo Nicole here. And I'm, I, we'll get into the nitty gritty, I'm sure, as we move, move through the program. Excellent. Exactly. So, you know, one of the reasons why we were excited to have you both on, given the backgrounds that you just described, is that we're celebrating the U.S. women's win of the, uh, you know, the World Cup just the other day. And so, Nicole, 
I was curious to help our listeners understand almost like this history of, of women in sport. Can you give us some of the key, you know, just milestones and some stats to help our listeners understand the context to get us to where we are today? Yeah, so perhaps listeners aren't familiar with our 1972 federal civil rights law called Title IX. And um, what that law did was made gender discrimination in our schools illegal. What it did is dramatically alter the landscape of sport participation for girls and women. So typically, uh, back in 1972, the stat we often cite is one in 27 girls played sports uh, pre-Title IX, and that number is somewhere around one in three girls currently play now. So it dramatically altered the landscape of sport participation for girls, and they were afforded the opportunities to do what the boys had always been afforded. That sounds great. And I know it's been really influential, And even though there have been a lot of complaints and concerns about it. So when we're thinking about um, sports and, and the influence on gender, Cheryl, let's just go directly to the, the sense of media around the, the World Cup win. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you think about that. How I think about the media coverage of the World Cup win. Yes. I'm really impressed um, in some ways with the media coverage. I think there's been um, really important conversations in part sparked by uh, the players themselves and their, their bravado and bravery with respect to bringing a, a kind of not just national attention, but global attention to issues of institutionalized gender discrimination in sport and in society. And so I've been really impressed with the kinds of conversations that are happening both within mainstream and legacy media, as well as uh, conversations that are happening on social media. At the same time, though, I'm somewhat um, dismayed or disheartened with some of the media coverage and conversations around the so-called uh, celebration controversy. And, and this kind of speaks to, I think, the ways in which expectations for women and sports women in our society are different than that of men. And so the kind of celebratory excess that we um, uh, expect or even embrace by male athletes is somehow um, uh, demeaned or diminished um, by some in the media that would suggest that, you know, the the players were being unsportsmanlike. And so some of those kind of um, maybe manufactured controversies that are distracting from the game but yet are speaking to cultural understandings of gender have been somewhat disappointing. But I think the overall um, outcome of this particular World Cup, and we've seen this in the past as well, is that when you provide a opportunity for people to tune in and watch women's sports, they will tune in, in in great numbers. So the ratings across the globe for this tournament have been broken in the United States, in Brazil, in France, and other countries. And so there is definitely an excitement and a desire to, um, to watch women compete and perform at this high level. And so... You know, thinking about the visibility, you know, ratings, uh, as, as Cheryl just described, Nicole... Can you help our listeners better understand, you know, what research is showing around sort of representation and sort of that visibility and having those role models for, you know, girls in sport? 
Well, we know from the data is very clear that same-sex role models matter. It matters for boys and men, and it matters for girls and women. And because we less likely see sportswomen compared to their male counterparts because of the work that Dr. Cookie has done, same-sex role models matter because it helps girls with positive self-perceptions, emulation. They can see themselves in that role of what is possible. They have relatable people. Uh, it challenges stereotypes about women as leaders. Um, and in the World Cup, we've seen women as strong, confident, tough, Absolutely. mentally, tough physically, um, and when we see women in those roles, we can see that as a viable possibility for ourselves. And I'm curious, Cheryl, to come back to the celebration on the field. Um, so I, I actually <laughs> I don't love it when male athletes sort of have this sort of big end zone celebration in, in American football. Um, but it absolutely to me seems like a total double standard that like, you know, women on the soccer field or soccer pitch, you know, like ha- celebrating the, the the goal or a great play. And, you know, you see that in men's soccer all, all the, time, the time for sure. And certainly across other sports. So what do you think is at the root of that? And and why, how do you think the, the why do you, you sort of said maybe a manufactured controversy? What What was going on there? <laughs> Well, I said I say manufactured in the sense that um, it, the controversy itself was real, but the way that it got, I think, um, disproportionate coverage in the media is, is what I mean by by manufactured. And so I think there was a, there's a sense that somehow this kind of um, exuberant expression of celebrating accomplishments and achievements is somehow unladylike or unfeminine, right? And so we see this in the research, that, that the expectations for women in our society, girls and women in our society, are much different than men around things like um, confidence and, um, you know, sort of uh, touting your own achievements, right? That I think women are, are um, more likely that we see in the research to attribute their successes, attribute their achievements to the people that are around them or attribute it to kind of luck in good circumstance not necessarily their own doing, their own achievement, their own agency. And so by celebrating, like, in that kind of very, if I may use the term badass, because that's how the the (laughs) media have described it, right, that kind of badass stance of, like, how you like me now, Megan Rapinoe, on the pitch after a goal. I mean, that is just such a... Um, uh, uh, an expression of joy, an expression of dominance, an expression of confidence that I think in our society we're still really uncomfortable with, despite the fact that we've made really significant gains over the last 20 or 30 years with respect to shifting uh, cultural norms around gender. I think this really speaks to the ways in which um, some of these uh, cultural beliefs are still really deep-seated and entrenched uh, in, in our sort of cultural consciousness. Well, and, you know, it really reminds me, you know, here we are on business radio powered by the Wharton School, and it reminds me of claims of women in the workplace, too. You know, that when, um, you know, a woman executive is aggressive, is, yeah. is aggressive or, you know, sort of shows her power, you know, then she's often bossy or maybe even a bitch or something like that versus like a leader and, and all of those same sorts of things. So Cheryl Kuhlman, uh, you know, that's sort of what also rings for me in sort of a, an analog here. Right. So it's, it's not just women in sports, it's women in business and everywhere else in their lives that, that are facing some of these same challenges. Well, Cheryl, so when you're doing your research about the unevenness of social change, right, the no slam dunk, I love the title, 
what are the what are the greatest accomplishments that you have seen in in the positive movement of of women and and gender in sports? I think that's a great question. Um, Dr. Lavoie mentioned this earlier with respect to Title IX and participation. So we've seen just this dramatic growth in um, the number of girls and women who are participating in sports. Um, and the Tucker Center has really been a, a leader in advocating and, and um, pushing for uh, positive change in that regard. I would say that there's also, um, while it's, it's not necessarily, we're not there 100%, but I do think that there is a different kind of cultural acceptance mm-hmm. of um, sports women, of, of uh, athleticism uh, within, uh, you know, kind of women's sports that we didn't see um, 20, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and I think that while I, there are those sort of deep seated gender beliefs, right, the influx of girls and women have really pushed our society and our culture to re-examine and reevaluate uh, what it means to be a girl and woman in our society. So I would say that kind of pushing those, those cultural expectations and challenging those has been another real positive shift. Um, but certainly I think, and we see this with the Women's World Cup and that the U.S. women's team and other teams across the globe are still advocating for uh, equal pay in sport, mm-hmm. right? So this is great that girls and women are participating in sports at, at um, you know, higher levels than, than ever before, but yet these struggles um, that have been uh, at the root of women's sports since its inception in uh, modern American culture, right? And Billie Jean King is somebody that I think about when I'm thinking about these pay equity issues, right? That was back in the 70s. She was advocating for equal pay um, for, for women athletes in tennis. And so we're seeing this uh, as still a struggle today. And so that's what we're really talking about with that kind of unevenness of social change, right? There's these moments of real progress uh, and positive movement, but they're also coupled by these, you know, sort of entrenched um, institutionalized forms of discrimination that are are pervasive and persistent um, despite some of these positive changes. And Nicole, so, you know, the Tucker Center is the uh, for research on girls and women in sport. What does the research say about the girls, right, and, and the importance of having girls involved in sport, even if they don't go on to become professional athletes? Yeah, the... The data is fairly deep and wide in terms of the benefits that can accrue when girls are afforded the opportunity to participate in a safe and healthy sport climate run by caring and qualified adults. Just because girls play sports doesn't automatically guarantee the benefits accrue. But when it's done right, um, we know that girls accrue psychological benefits in terms of positive self-perceptions. They have physiological benefits in terms of cardiovascular health, uh, bone health, less uh, risk for chronic disease. They have social benefits in terms of making friends and developing meaningful social connections. They have physical literacy. And maybe not more importantly, but newer data showing that women who play sports have uh, a better likelihood of succeeding in the labor market than their non-athletic peers. That, that makes sense given, you know, the the positive aspects that you talked about. If there's increase in self-confidence and ability to make decisions and be a leader, those are useful in the business area as well. Yeah, Collaboration. Two, yeah. two stats that sort of stand out to me real quick is that data shows that athletes have 
a 7% higher wages in the workplace than non-athletes for women. And that women in the C-suite, CFO, CEO, um, 92% of them played sports, and 52% of those C-suite women played college sports. Wow. So the researcher, you look, that that is not coincidental. (laughs) That's fascinating. So I am curious a little bit around um, a global global footprint. Um, and so, Nicole, just a quick yes or no. Um, does mm-hmm. your center look at research and or do research on a global scale or is it more U.S. focused? It's primarily been U.S. focused, but we've done a, a recent pivot in the last couple of years in collaborating with colleagues around the globe and, and looking at more global perspectives, specifically around women in sport leadership. So we have a, a wide network of Tucker Center affiliated scholars, of which Dr. Cookie is one. But um, we are starting to advance our work into into global initiatives, certainly moving forward. And so, um, Nicole, I'll follow up with you, but perhaps, Cheryl, you can answer this as well. But, Nicole, so when I think about the World Cup and, and soccer or mm-hmm. football as, as sort of that sport, um, you know, Football is a global sport in that regard, but yet the access to that or the promotion of uh, girls' participation in that, you know, globally may not be as pronounced even as the, it is in the U.S. So do you have any sense of the dynamics of sort of the success of the U.S. women's team over sort of its, you know, global counterparts given girl participation in sports earlier on? Well, I think a lot of people and our colleagues are pointing to the fact that the U.S. women's dominance at the World Cup in the last eight years can be perhaps attributed to the passage of Title IX in 1972 Mm -hmm. and afforded all these girls opportunity to play. Unfortunately, around the globe, other countries don't have a civil rights law like Title IX. So while we, you know, we study the fact that we still have a lot of um, inequities in sport between girls and boys and men and women. We're far ahead of many of our global counterparts in pretty much every aspect of girls and women in sport participation. So I think that the Women's World Cup and using their platform to advocate for equity and uh, safe spaces and less discrimination certainly will help domestically, but I think it will also push this uh, globally. And, and Cheryl, how would you characterize sort of the media attention to those issues, that platform? So I think pay was certainly highlighted, but how do you think the media has covered or could continue to cover um, some of those other, you know, gender equity issues across sports across the globe? Yeah, I think this is something that the um, UNESCO and, and other um, NGOs are really invested in, given the fact that um, globally, there is a, a, a sort of investment in uh, gender equality as a means towards um, social economic development, particularly in developing countries or transitioning uh, countries. And so um, there's definitely an effort to increase media coverage of women's sports in, in, in the sense of some of the things that uh, Dr. LeBoy was speaking to earlier around um, empowering girls and empowering women and shifting kind of uh, gender um, uh, norms and, and understandings. I think that um, within the United States, the context here, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping to see uh, is that, and this is what we've seen in the past, is unfortunately these um, high-profile, high-stakes, uh, elite-level international competitions 
get a lot of media attention and a lot of play during the actual time frame. So if you look at the data, we tend to see spikes in coverage, you know, during the World Cup, during the Olympics. Uh, and then what ends up happening is that, you know, once the, the players leave the pitch um, and go home or, you know, once the, the, the tournament ends, the, the competition ends, the cameras leave, uh, the media leave, and then we forget about women's sports in the everyday. So what I'm hoping for and what I'm starting to see, um, I was just looking up, I think it was on, um, well, I'll just say it was on a sports site here in the States, where it was like, how can you continue watching the U.S. women's national team during the year? And there's a, there's a professional women's sports league. Uh, they just got a, a contract with ESPN, and so their games are going to be televised on a major sports network which is a, um, a, a new thing for the, the professional league. I think that's going to have positive impacts. But I think the, the news media and sport media need to continue to follow women's sports throughout the year because they're, these, these athletes are um, uh, competing you know, year-round, not just in soccer, but other sports in the U.S. and, and globally as well. And so we, we need to continue to sustain this momentum across the year because what we see is when we build audiences – um, or when we, I should say, create opportunities to watch sport, you build and sustain audiences across time. And that extends to providing um, more opportunities, marketing, resources, um, expanding talent pools, and, and it has all kinds of uh, positive implications for the growth and development of women's sports both here and uh, globally. Yeah, and I think that would have an influence, too, on, on pay, right? If you're showing that you've got, if you're broadcasting more of the, the sports and the competitions and then demonstrating that there's an audience that's paying attention to it and not just at the, you know, the singular events, that would bolster the argument for getting additional pay. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I think that there's, all of these things are, are connected, right? Media coverage, um, translates into corporate sponsorships and advertising dollars, which translates into more money going into the professional leagues and, and federations and organizations. So certainly it has that potential. Um, but what's really compelling to me about the um, women's world, or excuse me, the women's national team uh, is that they have all the numbers, yeah. right? So when you stack up, when you look at the three R's, ratings, revenue, and retail, this um, women's team, uh, World Cup team in 2019, exceeds the men's um, on all of those indicators. And uh, Nike just announced that their um, highest-selling jersey, soccer jersey, is the women's national team for 2019. Um, the ratings have far outpassed uh, the, the men's tournament um, in 2018 here in the States. Um, if we look at the revenue, the women are now uh, surpassing the men um, at the national level uh, with respect to revenue generated for, for U.S. soccer. What the issue is, though, is that, unfortunately, sponsorships within the U.S. Soccer Federation, sponsorships, marketing, uh, advertising dollars, television contracts are all collapsed together. And so it's really difficult for people then to discern what's being generated specifically by the women and what's being generated by the men. But these indicators, I think, are really powerful. And this is why I think the women have been so successful with respect to making a compelling argument for pay equity is that all of the conventional ways in which discrimination of women's sports have been justified. No one tunes in to watch. No one's interested. The women's game isn't as exciting as the men's. The women don't play as well as the men's. There's been eight 
Women's World Cup, and the women have, U.S. women have meddled, I guess meddled is lack of a better word, right, have um, been in the top three in all of those eight and have won the tournament in four of those eight World Cups. I believe the U.S. men's team, um, and, and not to discredit them, but I think they've, uh, I think what, 1930 was the last time they, they, they won the World Cup, perhaps. So, um, and they, they don't place as well as the women. So I think there's some really powerful ways that, on paper, the women are really challenging our understandings of um, fairness and equity in sports. So I think we have uh, time for one quick answer from each of you on this question. So, Nicole, first, what do you think the future holds in this space, and what do you think our listeners should know or look for? Probably the most important trend that I want the listeners to pay attention to and, and look for, and I think Dr. Cookie was alluding to a lot of this in general, is that the business of women's sport is now being taken seriously. And that means media coverage, revenue generation, sponsorships, and that the business of women's sport is not just an afterthought, is that major corporate entities and media conglomerates are now realizing that they have a dramatically bigger fan base of women's sport than they ever imagined. And when they build it, the fans will come. So I think the future holds a lot of promise as corporations and business leaders take seriously uh, women's sport. And I think the second trend I would want our listeners to look for and maybe join in is that women are now advocating for what they deserve. And Dr. Cookie laid out some great statistics about the ratings, revenue, and retail is that women are not happy or satisfied with just being able to to be on the field. They are not just satisfied with being second-class citizens. Um, they, they want what they deserve, and we need more male allies in positions of power and sport to help them do so. And Cheryl, uh, in 30 seconds or less, can you answer Nick's question? Yeah, well, I, I would just echo what Nicole said. I think that there's the kind of um, perception of women athletes that we're just grateful to have the opportunity that no longer flies, right? This is a new generation of women who have different kinds of expectations um, and, and because the culture has changed, right? So now we have opportunities. Now let's take it to the next level and let's advocate for equal pay, for equal media attention, um, equal sponsorships, so and maybe not even equal, right? Because the women's World Cup, our national team in the U.S. far exceeds the men's in terms of performance. So maybe we should start thinking about paying the women more. Certainly they deserve it. (laughs) Now that's a radical thought. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're going to have to close the show. Um, If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Wharton Social. I want to thank our guests, uh, Nicole Lavoie and Cheryl Cookie, who were just talking with us, and also Claudine Gardenberg, who was joining us during the first segment. We also want to say thank you to our program director, Patty Hall, as well as associate producer and currently sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and our producer, Matt Datz. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman, and you've been listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.
For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 